Welcome to another episode of On the Highway. I'm your host, Megan Anderson, and each week we bring you an expert in the mortgage and real estate realm. You can learn how to navigate the housing and real estate highway to take your business to the next level. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's get driving. I'm one of your hosts, Megan Anderson, along with Barry Habib, and today's guest is the MBA's Mortgage Bankers Association's Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Research and Industry Technology. In this role, he is responsible for overseeing the MBA's surveys, forecasts, technology efforts, and policy development research for both single-family, multifamily, and commercial markets. And today, he's going to share with us his 2024 forecast. Join me in welcoming Mike Pratt and Tony. Thanks, Megan. Mike, it's so great to, to have you here, my friend. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an honor to have you. We certainly watch and follow your work. Your forecasts are something we look forward to. And your work is always, always cutting edge. So thanks for taking your valuable time and joining our family here at MBS Highway. Cool. Thanks for the invite. Really looking forward to it. So 2023, I think we all know, was a bit of a challenging year for everyone. Uh, there were some twists and turns in the road that certainly surprised us. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about 2024. So maybe let's start with with the housing market in general. There seems to be uh, some more optimism as far as the housing market. Uh, we we have, you know, obviously been very much the, trying to handicap where things are going and. You know, Fortunately, we've been on the right side of this. A lot of people thought that the housing market was uh, was going to see a huge correction. It has continued to remain resilient. Uh, what are your thoughts on the housing market and perhaps more importantly for increase in transactions? Yeah. So agreeing with you that the uh, home price environment, certainly stronger than some have been forecasting. You know, anytime you see a doubling in mortgage rates, I think Folks outside of our industry, it, it makes sense. Wow, that's just going to bring transaction volume to a screeching halt, and it can't be good news for home prices. But what I think people didn't fully appreciate was just how structurally undersupplied our housing market is. That in the decade from 2010 to 2019, we were anywhere from three to five million units short of what we needed for the demographic housing demand in this country. And that continues to be an overhang that didn't get better. Uh, during the pandemic, right? It got worse. It got tougher to build during the pandemic. So uh, end of the day, 2023, home prices nationally probably were up 5%. Um, we think that's going to slow over the next couple of years. Uh, you know, mortgage rates are definitely a headwind, right? Um, but this undersupply is still going to help to support value. So we see home prices up 3 to 4% per year over the next couple of years. You know, on the one hand, for, an, for a current owner, that sounds good, right? That your value is not going to drop even with this tougher environment. But for someone getting into the market, the fact that home prices may be growing slower than wages, that's going to be a real opportunity that we haven't seen in a while. So we do see purchase volume growing, uh, both new and existing home sales likely to increase. And as I said, home value is likely to keep going up nationally. If you were to try to handicap a, a level of increase compared to 2023. I know 2023 is a very, very low level. Um, you, you know, Mike, before I, before you answer that question, just the other day on one of our updates, we were looking at the index. And boy, it's nice to see over the past few weeks that index rise. 
but when you look at it on a relative basis, yeah. it's still about half of what it was pre-pandemic, right? So, um, so any increase would be welcome. What do you think? What do you think for the year ahead as far as an increase in the number of purchase applications? Yeah. So we're looking for about a ten percent increase in new home sales, uh, about a five percent increase in existing home sales, and the difference between the two just uh, really uh, is a picture of the market today. Typically, you would expect at any point five to ten percent of homes for sale would be new construction. Right now, it's about a third. Right, so this is a market leaning very much into new construction because of the lock-in effect, because current owners much less likely to list their home. We do think through 24, 25, 26, that lock-in effect is going to begin to fade. You get some more properties on the market, transaction volume will pick up. And so, you know, with all that, yeah, I mean, purchase volume poised to increase on the back of that higher level of transactions. Well, that would be really welcome news for all of us. Um, Tell me a little bit about where you see the interest rate environment in 2024 and perhaps some of the things that you're looking at to try and handicap where you think rates may go. Yeah, sure. So maybe let's start at the short end of the curve, right? So uh, what the Fed's controlling with their Fed funds target, the biggest and potentially best news we got as an industry in in recent uh, months was the pivot in December. So. not unexpected, but it was nice to hear it from Chair Powell's uh, own lips at the press conference that they're at the peak for this cycle. And then that's been confirmed by other Fed officials. Uh, really strange things would have to happen for us to turn the other way. Uh, inflation would have to start going higher again in a meaningful way for them to change their tune, I think. So that has changed the conversation, right? Um if you go back not too far ago, you know, September, October of last year, you had some Wall Street forecasters thinking the Fed funds rate might have gone to seven, right? I mean, you had Jamie Dimon saying, you know, everybody should be prepared for short rates to go much higher. That can be captured in one number, right? The level of rate volatility, just how uncertain markets are about where rates could go. And you think about it back last fall. There was sort of even bets as to whether 12 months later we'd be up or we'd be down. The December pivot sort of carves half of that distribution arc, right, and says much more likely that we're going to go down from here. And now the question is, when's the first cut and how quickly do they cut after that? Our forecast uh, at this point aligned with where the FOMC was in December. So we're looking for three cuts in 24, four in 25, and then a few more in 26. So to take us from the five and a quarter, five and a half level down to somewhere between two and a half and three. So that's that's neutral. If bad things don't happen, we don't get a severe recession between now and then. I think that's the you know, a reasonable expectation that I think the Fed funds over the next decade average something like three percent. Five and a half is going to be high. So that's the short end of the curve. So let's let's talk about that a little bit deeper because there's there's a lot there that you gave us. Um, agree. The pivot was extremely meaningful. So, given the the Fed's dot plot and them telegraphing that they see more rate cuts ahead, not just for 2024 but 2025 and then 2026, as you just outlined. You know, if you're listening to this, that's very good news because what that means is that if you're speaking with a customer, 
for the Fed is is telegraphing that there's lower rates, lower rates, lower rates. And Mike, it's it's been maybe you can add some color to this, but I think the National Association of Realtors said for every one percent drop in mortgage rates, about five million more people become eligible. And if that's the case, and we see rates continuing to drop, well, that does bode well for home prices. But it also means if you think inventory is tight now, potentially gets even tighter. Uh, any thoughts on that part? Yeah. Well, first, the translation between what the Fed's doing and mortgage rates, right? So short end of the curve versus longer end of the curve. You know, people usually think of 30-year mortgage rates being priced either off of five years, 10 years, mix of the two. Um, and obviously, the capital markets folks can go can go much deeper than that. But um, just, you know, back to your finance class, right? A longer-term rate uh, is largely the market's expectation of average short-term rates over the next period of time, right? So a five-year treasury is the market's best bet of where short rates are going to be over the next five years. So from our perspective, it's not just what the Fed does on that FOMC meeting day. That's of interest. More important is what they communicate about that future path of rates, because that future path of rates is then baked into the longer rate today. So the pivot moved us from a 5% 10-year treasury to a less than 4% 10-year treasury and a 8% 30-year mortgage rate down to a 6 and 3 quarters 30-year mortgage rate. And you know, your, 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 your uh, uh, clients here are, are very attuned to moment-by-moment moment movement rates. But I think you know, that, just keep in mind just what a big announcement that was. And they didn't do anything to the Fed Funds target, right? That was just an announcement about future paths. So in terms of impact on the market, there's a couple of ways to think about this, right? So lower rates uh, encourage more people to, uh, to go ahead and buy a home today. Um, probably not a lot of rate or term refinance demand, just given the distribution of rates on outstanding mortgages. I think we're going to see growing cash out refinance demand, given how much other liabilities people have. Um, people are starting to talk about a a contrary trend, though, too, to to your question, which is, okay, we're at six and three quarters today, but my uh, potential home buyers keep hearing about this. The Fed's going to cut. The Fed's going to cut. So they're now saying, I'm going to wait till tomorrow because the Fed's going to cut. So why should I? Why should I lock in at six and three quarters today? Um, I think we may have some of that in the mortgage market, in the business lending market, right? If if you're looking at, do I build a factory today or do I wait? You know, six months, twelve months till rates are lower. That's a that's a tough decision. It's it's the same thing for a home buyer, right? It's uh, you never want to be timing the market, but if there's this news out there that rates may drop, that could cause some delay. So I think that's part of a conversation that any loan officer would have to have with their customer. Yeah, and I think that uh, to that point, uh, we we know that as rates decline, it probably bodes well again for home values. So what that would do is that would mean if you did do the you know saying marry the home and date the rate, you would more than overcome the cost of paying a slightly higher rate today or even a greater rate today, uh, as well as the cost to refinance it, would be overwhelmed by the benefit you receive by uh, seeing the appreciation and amortization by doing it today. So yeah, th- these are important points, Mike. So let's let's get a little bit deeper on onto the, the long end. And, and now the Fed has told us based upon the dot plots that that they are considering, for the most part, I think it was, it was five members that said um, 50 basis points, 70 
members saying 75 basis points, four members saying 100 basis points. So that's why the market's interpreting it as, uh, well, the, that's why the Fed's interpretation, the, the market's interpretation of the Fed is roughly 75 basis points. But there's also the market expectation that it would be more. And I think some of that might have to do with the fact that some of the economic data, for example, the job numbers, we know they're unreliable. We know they get revised and the, the bias has been downwards. You know that we've seen 12 out of 12 downward revisions on the private sector and then the overall sector, 11 out of 12 revisions. And then you still have the benchmark, two more benchmark revisions, which will probably bring those lower. We, we know that we're beginning big discrepancies between the household survey and the uh, establishment survey as well. And in the Fed's dot plot, 12 of the 19 members see the unemployment rate staying below 4.2%. I think three members were 3.8 to 3.9, nine members were 4 to 4.1. So if we were to hit 4.2%, the Fed would then have to recalibrate, in my opinion, and likely get much more aggressive in their rate cuts. Now, I want to ask you two parts to this question. One is, what are your thoughts on the unemployment rate? in 2024, because I think that that will play a big role in the Fed's policy. But also, to me, more importantly than the actual rate cuts will be their decision to at least taper the quantitative tightening and as to the timing of that. So what are your thoughts on those two things? Yeah, great question. So uh, we just put out our January forecast and you know, this job market surprised a lot of people. We had we had been thinking the unemployment rate would increase quickly through the course of 24. We've sort of scaled back the rate at which that's going to go up. So we hit it, see it hitting about four and a half percent by the end of this year, maybe going a little bit higher in 25. And we've we've scaled up our expectations for economic growth uh, accordingly and got you know got the fourth quarter GDP number this morning came in a little bit faster than had been expected. Yeah, this has been a funny job market. Uh, you know, agree that all the revisions have tended to be downward. That tends to happen uh, at the end of an economic cycle. That the way the uh, assumptions are baked into those job numbers, uh, it, it essentially assumes a certain number of new companies are created at each point in time, and that assumption is generally right over the course of a cycle, but is too optimistic at the end of a cycle, too pessimistic at the beginning of one. So there are these sort of predictable errors that are that are getting baked in. Uh, and that'll come through over time. But you, you see the drop in the number of job openings, the drop in the hiring rate, the drop in the quits rate, all, all that indicating a weaker job market. So I, I think you're right, we're, we're headed higher. And the Fed is is honestly worried about that, right? They, they want the inflation number to get back to 2%, but they want to do it at the lowest cost in terms of lost jobs as possible. Yeah. Your yeah, second I, question. Oh, yeah, please, by the ahead. way, completely, completely agree with you. Um, I, I think that the, especially the birth death model is a, is, is not good at inflection points. You know, it yeah. can be okay when it's steady, but it does not capture inflection points well. So I am a hundred percent on board with you. Please continue with the second part, which is yeah. start, starting to lead into that, that balance sheet reduction. All right. Which is, uh, you know, talk of the town right now, because that, that is the other thing that changed in December, not at the meeting, uh, but in the minutes. And um, you have to really be, uh, I'll just say, deep in the weeds. I'll, I'll say, say, it, say it nicely to, to really have been following this the past couple of years, right? But um, I, I talk about it at most of my presentations where 
This happened in the great financial crisis, happened again during the pandemic. The Fed not only brought short rates down to zero to support the economy, but also because financial markets just weren't functioning well. Remember the dash for cash in March of 2020, where investors across, I mean, central banks were dumping U.S. treasuries, right? But it was a very strange time. So the Fed jumped in with both feet, buying tens of billions of dollars of longer term treasuries and MBS just to support market functioning. Um, and we went from a world where they had a $4 trillion balance sheet to one where they had an $8 trillion balance sheet. And they kept adding to that balance sheet through early 2022. Then as they made the turn in the stance of monetary policy, began to allow those assets to roll off. $60 billion per month in treasuries, uh, up to $35 billion a month in MBS. Those are caps because prepayments are so slow, they're not hitting that $35 billion cap. So that's just been running in the background. And uh, this happened in the mid-20-teens with Chair Yellen happening with, with Powell. That's the way they talk about it. They don't want to manipulate that from meeting to meeting. They just want that going. They want the balance sheet to get smaller. Uh, and they they set sort of a vague endpoint. They wanted the balance sheet and bank reserve levels to drop to a point where they were ample as opposed to abundant and all these you know terms of art, right? Why? Um, in 2019, if you'll recall, they were shrinking the balance sheet, and then we got to the fall, and all of a sudden, the market tied up. Uh, we saw uh, overnight rates go from 2% to 10%, right? So signs of real stress in the money markets. And the Fed jumped in and stopped quantitative tightening at that point. So sort of lesson learned. They didn't want that to happen again. And so they were going to stop at ample reserves rather than trying to keep pushing the balance sheet down further and further. So again, you haven't heard about this conversation from the Fed, but if you listen to Wall Street analysts who are in the thick of this, they were saying as you know, middle of last year, look, this is going to happen earlier than the Fed thinks, that reserves are going to get scarce once again. One reason for it, you remember the big news last year, right, were the three of the four biggest bank failures in U.S. history, Silicon Valley being the biggest. Um, after that, and you know, just remember the specifics of that, Silicon Valley Bank saw $40 billion of deposits flee in one day and $100 billion lined up to leave the next day, right? If you're a banker, you're the treasurer of the bank, that's terrifying to think about that, right? So going forward, most every bank in the system wants to hold a higher level reserves to make sure they are never in that position, that they're able to honor those depositor demands whenever that happens. So the level of bank reserves that makes them comfortable is much higher than was true pre-pandemic and certainly pre-Silicon Valley Bank. Okay, so quantitative tightening is happening. What happened in December? Well, we didn't know about it until the minutes came out, but the minutes came out and it was a, a small comment that said, you know, some participants think pausing or halting quantitative tightening is likely to happen soon. And that really confirmed what all these analysts were saying. A couple of Fed officials, the, the Dallas Fed president, confirmed that uh, in subsequent comments. Um, so that has left a, a lot of analysts thinking, OK, we thought this was a 2025 phenomenon. This is much more clearly a 2024 phenomenon. This may be a spring of 2024 phenomenon. And then there was the announcement last night sort of confirming that they're ending the bank term funding program. That's wrapped into all of us, too. 
apologies for the deep dive, but as you can tell, sort of my head has been in this because this matters for us, right? One way this could happen is the end quantitative tightening means they stop allowing roll-off of MBS and treasuries. The other is they stop roll-off of treasuries, will still allow the MBS portfolio to wind down as slowly as it is. Um, either way, it's probably not going to be consequential for mortgage rates. Treasury rates, I think that's going to be downward pressure, right? Because you, instead of $60 billion having to move from the Fed to private hands, that'll stay with the central bank. So again, apologies for the long answer, but th this is important. People don't pay enough attention to it, but over the next several months, it could impact our markets. Yeah. Um, so, so many great comments, Mike. And and let me try and I want to try and kind of pose something to you as well and first give you our thoughts on it. So yes, we have, as you've been all over this and we've been presenting about this um, and, and I want to introduce something else into the conversation, but first let me just give you our thoughts. So, you know, when when we had seen the Fed's balance sheet pre-pandemic, it was somewhere in the range of $4.2, $4.3 trillion, but the representation relative to GDP was about 22 to 23%. So we felt that that was somewhat of a comfort zone for the Fed um, as, as we were in that kind of range of percentage of GDP. And they were there for five years. So we had to think that that was you know, something that they were comfortable with. And as you mentioned, when they started to taper a bit, um, they realized that as LIBOR rates jumped to 9% and things, just as you outlined, um, we had seen the Fed had to step back in. Well, when they let the balance sheet balloon up to $8.5 trillion of their outright holdings, uh, that represented 33% of the then GDP number. So they've tapered it down to $7.1 trillion. It right now rests somewhere around 25% of current GDP, around there. It still seems like it's a little bit high. So we did the math and we did the numbers of what I think it comes down to. And it seems like we get there second half of the year to where the Fed might say, okay, maybe June 12th, July 31st, we can make an announcement. So we are 100% in concert with you. And yes, we, we know that March 11th deadline of the bank term funding program does certainly play a role. And if you take a look, I know you're very well aware of this, the the incredible rise in that bank term lending program that, yeah. that brought it up to $160 billion of late. I think as banks said, wait a minute, I could borrow against 100% of face value instead of taking the haircut. They wanted to take advantage of that. Really underscores your point. But here's what I wanted to ask you. The reverse repos. We've seen reverse repos go to $2.5 trillion. And as the Fed kind of signaled that this was the peak, banks started to pull money out of reverse repos and they have purchased treasuries with that to wisely lock in 5% on a 10-year, 5.5% on a 2-year. And it's acted for Janet Yellen as a piggy bank or a cookie jar, where she's been able to pawn off treasuries and banks have been buying them with both fists, even on the way down. Now it's leveled off in the last two weeks or so, and we all know that, but still, we're now down to six to seven hundred billion in that range remaining from those reverse repos. So, Mike, is there a, a problem that we might run into where we drain those reverse repos to no longer allowing Janet Yellen to have that cookie jar? And now, unless the Fed stops QT, even if they start cutting, and let's just say May 1st is the first cut that seems highly likely, it's maybe a coin flip depending on the data that comes out 
to March 20th. So let's say May 1st, they make their first cut. Rates may actually misbehave and get worse if we run out of the reverse repo piggy bank and Jerome Powell doesn't say we're going to at least slow down the QT. And by the way, the smartest minds that I talk to are all in the same mindset as you, as that they'll leave the mortgage runoff, but maybe taper that 60 billion in treasuries to like 30 billion. Like Lacey Hunt feels that that's definitely the path that they'll go on. So we agree with that. But we could have a serious hiccup there where the market wouldn't be able to interpret. There might be a rise in mortgage rates and treasuries, even though the Fed's cutting because the supply coming to the market will now have to be absorbed. Yeah. So on the reverse repo point, obviously, right, those, that's where money market funds are, are parking uh, really sort of short term uh, capital. And today, you know, treasury bills are, are paying a better rate than that overnight reverse repo. And I think the, the challenge for the market is once that gets drained, and uh, I think differences in opinion as to whether drain means, you know, less than 500 billion or zero, but it's dropping so fast, we're going to get to either one fairly quickly. Once that's gone, then they're going to be pressure on bank reserves. And we don't know how far bank reserves can go down before there's a problem. But you do know that it's not going to be the same for every bank, that there are some banks that are much more constrained in their ability to raise funds than others. And uh, we could we could run into challenges well before the you hit the level of bank reserves that the Fed might want to hit. You know, from a from a Treasury Secretary, you know, Treasury Secretary Yellen standpoint, they're not having any trouble selling debt, right? That, that, that's the U.S. Treasury is is still, despite the downgrades, uh, <laughs> Treasury securities are still valued very highly around the world. Um, uh, you do wish that the Congress and the administration would be uh, a little more cautious about the level of deficits they're running, because at some point we will run into into more troubles. But we're we're not there yet. And the Treasury, um, I think they would admit, were a little clumsy in the way they handled the security issuance calendar last year of immediately following a downgrade, issuing more long-term debt. That was, that was probably not the best tactical move. Two, tr two trillion dollars worth, right? Two right. trillion in four months. <laughs> that was just, you know, uh, wearing a kick me sign to some extent. But um, they seem to have learned that lesson. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the the plan, as you said, to sort of taper the end of QT. So it's not this shock to the system of going from relatively rapid runoff, you know, a one percent per month to nothing. But, you know, clearly communicate we're, we're there. And I think that that statement in the minutes was the first way of doing that. And, and, and so I agree with you that, of course, the treasuries will get bought. But the question is, at what yield that we have to pay interest on? Right. So that's where I'm saying that Janet Yellen has been able to pawn off treasuries at a, you know, at, at a more a more reasonable yield than we were back in you know October and November. But if we if we are no longer seeing those. Uh, the, the the money coming out of the reverse repos. Um, and by the way, Lacey Hunt told me on this topic that he thinks between 200 and 300 billion, to your point, Mike, it, it's it's not at zero. It's yeah. below 500. So yeah, you're right on the money. Um, two to 300 billion seems to be uh, adequate reserves for functioning uh, banking systems. So uh, when do you think 
the timing might be of a, an eventual tapering of QT? I am certain that at the press conference next week, Chair Powell will get a question about that. I'm, I'm not certain how he'll answer it, right? But uh, he'll be prepared with a with a good answer for that. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's not it's not clear if uh, in the FOMC statement they will they will do something next week, or whether instead it'll be you know we talked about it. Here are the range of options we're considering. That it could be a, that kind of a thing. But I would think, um, again, given that they felt compelled to make that change last night at 7 p.m., I think this is very front of mind for them. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if you get an announcement next week. Uh, and then it, it, may, it may not start happening until March, but I, I would not be surprised if we get an announcement next week. That would be huge, you know, and, and the interesting thing about that, Mike, is you bring up, you know, a question being asked about it. So I was told by Danielle DiMartino, who's really, you know, she's brilliant and you probably know her. She's a dear friend and she's really on the inside of this. And she tells me that reporters who ask a question like that, they're typically on the, on the, um, it's been like the sacred cow to ask about the balance sheet. They're not even invited back. <laughs> so if you were, I know you know this, but in the last press conference, nobody touched it until the very last question when it was asked about the balance sheet during the press conference on December 13th. So I thought it was interesting. And she said that probably that report is not going to be asked back. So yeah, I hope they do talk about this because this is like you said, Mike, this is probably one of the most important things that people haven't been talking about, but now it's, 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 a, it's a topic that is, uh, it is really critical as to uh, what the direction of, of rates and expectations will be. Probably even more important, I think, than actual rate cuts potentially, especially on the long run. Yeah. Well, I think the, the rate cut path now has been laid out pretty clearly, right? If those projections hold, uh, the market knows what's coming. But on this, they're still, they're still guessing. So what's your, what's your best handicap for either March 20th for a rate cut or May 1st for a rate cut? I think, think May 1st. Um, Largely because I think the you know the inflation numbers are are heading in the right direction, but I think by March they'll have certainty that they're going to hit their two percent year on year number. Well, we'll see tomorrow what that PCE number looks like. You know, if that were to come in, you know, well below three percent, um, you know, perhaps that would get them to move as early as March. Again, they'll signal next week uh, if if they think March is likely, right? Uh, they're now in a you know every every meeting is live kind of a, a mindset, but most FOMC officials have kept trying to push back against the market expectations of uh, sooner and faster uh, because I think uh, you know even the more dovish members have tried to say, look, we're going to hold at this peak level for a while to make sure we are locked in, and we don't get a reversal on that inflation path. So, Mike. Um by the way, love your insights and love talking to you here. Um, so I know all of us appreciate your, your wisdom. Um, I think you, you've allowed us a wonderful transition to start to move towards a very important basis of a lot of these decisions, and that is inflation. So, you know, we, we've been following inflation very, very closely, and we know that the Fed has told us a few things here. I thought in that in that December 13th meeting, a big point of pivot was the fact that, that um, Chairman Powell actually came right out and said, we will not wait to start cutting till we hit 2% because that'll be too late. Uh, a reporter asked, what number would that be? And he wisely declined to answer <laughs> the question. But 
I think it's important for us to try and see if we can handicap this a little bit. So one of the things that you know we look at, we look at the replacement values and what might be coming in. And we've actually outlined a path to get to lower levels. Uh, probably by the June 12th meeting, you probably have a core PC under two and a half. And that might be a, I'm sorry, by the May 1st meeting under two and a half. And that might be a good time at that May 1st meeting. We agree with you um, to see that. But the numbers that we're expecting this Friday, I think the Cleveland Fed estimated at 0.25 month over month core PCE. And then there's a lot of market consensus at around 0.2%, but you don't know what a second fraction is. So with the actual number 3.16, it is potentially um, going to see that number come in under 3%. Um, I think that'll be good headway, but not enough for the Fed of January 31st to cut. But a big reason why this number is inflated, I mean, if you look at trueflation, if you look at X, X shelter, if you look at the last six month run rate, it's it's the shelter component that is causing this. And it's the way that the Fed looks at the number based upon what the BLS or the BEA does it. And we're running at six and a half percent year on year on CPI shelter. We're running at 6.7%. This is all through November, by the way, we'll get it on Friday. Uh, on, on PCE year over year shelter. And it just has no context to what's going on in the real world. And I know it's on a delay, but then here's the thing I'm, 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 I really am curious about because I just don't know the answer to this. The month over month numbers are still coming in for five tenths month over month. And I can't understand why that's happening, but I do know, and maybe you have some more info on this, is that there is a catch up with the way that it's collected that occurs like February, March. So we'll see those in March and April. And do you understand that catch up, that six month basis that they do the catch up on? Maybe you can help us with that. Not sure I know what you're referring to there, but I mean, the, the biggest difference though is they're looking at an in-place rent, right? So conceptually, if you have a hundred unit apartment building, they are every month capturing what the rent change is across those 100 units, even though you know those 100 units sign leases at different times and the rent's fixed for the next 12 months. That is uh, understandable from sort of a statistical construct, you know, devising a, a survey to measure rents over time, but it just doesn't line up with the way industry folks think about the market. Industry folks primarily are looking at effective asking rents, right? So for that next tenant coming in, what's the rent that they're being quoted? And effective, what about the concession that they're being given? You know, is, is there a free month's rent throwing in there? Is, do they throw in a free parking place? You know, what, what have you? That matters, particularly in this kind of a market. As you know, there's about a million multifamily units under construction right now. Some were delivered into last year, a lot this year, some next year. Rental vacancy rates are moving up rapidly, and a lot of those units are being delivered to just a handful of the largest metro markets. And so you're seeing uh, that effective asking rent actually decline in those markets. So you're really dealing with two different concepts, right? So what somebody deciding whether they're going to lend on, a, on an apartment building, that effective asking rent is probably the most important piece of information because that's saying today's market color. For a cost of living index, right? Not everybody moves every year, right? And so those folks that stay in place, that, that is telling you something. 
luckily, most of the time, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Just like we were talking about with the birth-death model, most of the time, it's it's good enough. Uh, it's just at these turning points that it matters a lot. Uh, and going from a world where we had, you know, 12, 13% rent inflation nationally uh, by both measures, right, <laughs> to now a, a real turn in, in the market due to this supply coming on. And then, you know, as you know, it's not just uh, rent, it's owner's equivalent rent, which again made sense when, when from a conceptual standpoint because. There was a time in the 1980s where mortgage principal and interest payments went into the CPI. And then anytime the Fed raised rates, it looked like inflation was going up, which is kind of counterintuitive because you raise rates to slow inflation, right? But it's so it wasn't capturing what you thought you were capturing. So you do this owner's equivalent rent thing, which is the cost of living in your house is not your mortgage payment. It's what you give up by not renting your house. It's an opportunity cost. It's a very sensible thing. Sure is tough to measure. <laughs> I worked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, it's tough to measure that uh, because the, the kinds of properties that are owned tend to be different from the kinds that are rented. And so looking for where would you look for a rent on that property, it's tough to find. So um, I'm sympathetic with folks that measure because I, you know, I we do our own surveys, our own data. It's hard to uh, get data that's always representative of the market. Yeah, you know, and and Mike, so many good things there. By the way, I think it was 1976 when they made that um, they made that switch to just make it rents and owners equivalent rent. And, and owners equivalent rent, um, it it makes up, uh, I think it's close to 70 percent of the value of it. And then you got rents, and then you got lodging away from home, which is very small but very volatile. Uh, on the Owner's equivalent rent, what amazes me, Mike, is that even though it's somewhat arbitrary where you're asking a owner what they think they could rent their home for, it does tend to track actual rents very, very closely. Are, are, are people just that good at handicap? Is there a reason why it tracks that closely? Yeah. Well, again, there's two parts, right? So, so yeah, initially you ask the owner, what would you rent your, your house for? Uh, and then that's changed over time by a market index of rents. It's a, sort of the assumption is that within that market, it's going to grow or fall at the same pace as, as rental properties. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, get as, get as close to the, to the ground as you can, right? And uh, that, I think you know, most owners have a pretty good sense. They, they, probably, they generally tend to overestimate the value of their properties. I think most loan officers know, right? <laughs> and so they probably overestimate the rent as well. But uh, that change going forward, no reason they would uniformly be off. Yeah, and and I I think that um, as as we we take a deeper look at at the rental situation, um, your point is very well taken. Is that new rents? Uh, if you look at the apartment list numbers, they're actually declining on a year over year basis slightly by about one percent. But yet, it's those renewal rents, and that stands to reason. You know, it's a pain in the ass to move. And if you got somebody living in the in, in the house, you can say, well, I'm going to jack your rate up five percent or six percent. Um, if you don't, if you don't want it, then you can move, but now you got the expense of moving the hassle of moving. So there's yeah. a lot more command that you have as a landlord in, in increasing the rent so long as that, you know, you're going to get received payment for it. Um, but in the way that the data is collected, is there a level of contemplation on the new asking rents or are they just looking at the renewal rent component? And that's why it's remaining so hot. 
So it, it's like a moving average, right? So if in that 100-unit apartment building, 90 folks stay, 10 move, then you know nine-tenths is this really slow-moving part, and the one-tenth is sort of that new piece of information. So yeah. that's the way and to the, think and about the, it. And and the way they collect it is very unusual. There are catch-ups in February and March, and they have these six-month averages. It's it's a bit cryptic, yeah. but um, again, uh, my my sympathy with them because if you look at the budget for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's tiny, right? They're doing the best with what they got. <laughs> it's hard. What what a good point, though, Mike. And the fact that you have firsthand experience there. I mean, you're a lot more sensitive. It's it's and I'm guilty of it. I've been I've been critical of the data that we get, but you're right. It's a Herculean effort and it's a small budget. I mean, that's probably an area where it would pay to get some good data out of it because monetary policy oftentimes is looking at these things and that affects error. That's the most important price in the world, the price of money. Staying on inflation, um, there are events that you know move inflation and, and, and you know we know that what's going on with these uh, Iranian-sponsored Houthi attacks and it is causing shipping costs now to be uh, increase due to the diversion and, and, and avoiding that area. Um, how how do you how do you think that this plays out? Do you think that this is a temporary situation that will be absorbed, or do you think that this is a real concern that could cause um, some inflationary properties that will now be translated into the, the Fed's thinking or into interest rates? Yeah. So, you know, every day spending some time watching the oil price, right? That That's going to be where you see it first. Um, but then other supply chain impacts, at least my understanding, much more likely to impact Europe than the U.S. Um, obviously, the, the Panama Canal issues with the drought uh, in, in Central America, much more likely to impact uh, U.S. Uh, the combination of the two, not, not helpful, but I guess... It, Everything I understand of the situation is it's um, it's to the right of the decimal place, as opposed to during the pandemic, the supply chain constraints were, you know, significant, significant hurdles in terms of availability and price. So I don't expect it to have a huge impact, but boy, with the, the conflict seeming to continue to widen sort of week by week, that is a huge risk to the global economy. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Megan. Um I wasn't really watching, but perhaps there are questions or items in the chat that our our listeners who have been, uh, you know, are so wonderful and 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 getting on board of this. Mike, we got over a thousand people that are that are listening to you and hanging on your your thoughts here. So, uh, uh, so we we truly do appreciate that. But uh, Megan, perhaps the um, so, some of our our family members here uh, have some questions or things that are on their mind. So maybe let's let's bring that to the front. And so Mike has a question here. With all of the international turmoil happening, especially as it relates to the potential of war, how would this affect the market? Yeah. So, yeah, so we still have uh, an active war in the Ukraine and then the, the situation in the Middle East. And, you know, this month we had the, the risk with the, the election in Taiwan that the Situation there could heat up as well. So you know, geopolitical concerns front, front and center, like they we haven't seen in some time. And uh, you know, I saw a stat the other day, and we saw something like sixty percent of the world's population are having elections this year, right? Including ourselves, right? So lots of potential change, lots of potential stress. Um, 
just like I, I mentioned with respect to, you know, if you think rates may drop, maybe that delays a decision because if it's going to be a little better tomorrow, why don't I just wait till tomorrow? I think with this kind of uncertainty too, it's really easy for, again, someone planning to build a factory or acquire a company or make a big business decision. It's like, well, let's wait and see how this turns out. <laughs> it tends to get people to sit on their hands a bit. And so it's, it's one of a number of factors that has us thinking that certainly through the first half of this year, maybe the whole year, the pace of global growth is going to slow because you're going to have more and more actors saying, I'm just going to wait and see how this turns out because I don't want to go left when I should have gone right or the reverse. Um, and we'll know more a year from now, particularly with these elections. And, and hopefully some of this conflict will have died down as well. You know, you talk about wars, uh, the, the scariest wars is, is, is the one we definitely want to avoid is, is, is what potentially is going on in, in Texas at the border. And, uh, you know, the, the showdown between, you know, federal agents and state authorities that, you know, let's hope it doesn't come to, to gunpoint of, to, you know, what's going on there. I mean, that, that's the one that scares of all the, all of them are scary, but that's the one that really scares me the most is that uh, uh, I, I don't know how the markets would respond to something like that if that erupted, but uh, but but that's the one that I'm watching most closely. It is it is uh, it's 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 scary, you know, a state uh, protecting its sovereign authority and the Fed reaching and saying we want to overreach on the sovereignty of the state for you know opening up the border versus protecting the border. I just uh, I'm not going to get political on it. I'm just saying. I'm worried that a conflict like that um, could be could could be a scary one for us. You know, we we don't want to see anything that resembles any kind of civil war here. Um, yeah. But that, that's that's a scary one. I don't know. I don't know how that would that would play out for the financial markets. Um, any other questions, Megan? Yes. So you know, speaking of rates, they have moved lower from the peak. We have a question here from Tim. How low do you think rates will move by year end? And when do you think we'll see a bottom of the market in this current rate cycle? Yeah. So our forecast has a 30-year mortgage rate uh, at about six by the end of the year and then leveling at around five and a half in, in 2025. And uh, you know, we, we project out to 2026, and that that's about what where we think will be, and that that's consistent with the Fed ending this cycle between two and a half and three, a 10-year Treasury Treasury leveling at around three and a half, so we have a, a positively sloped yield curve again, and we get the spread between mortgages and Treasuries closer to the historical norm, but but not all the way. So that's that's the way we're thinking about it. Um, it is really tough to forecast rates, as Barry knows, and so. Uh, we always talk about scenarios too, right? What would cause rates to go higher than that baseline? It would be inflation turning around and the Fed stopping well short of that two and a half, three that I'm, that I'm talking about. What could bring rates much lower than that? Um, rather than just a slowdown, it would be a, a financial crisis, a, a, a steeper, deeper recession than we have forecasts in our base path. Um, I think it would take a lot to get the Fed to go back down to zero again, it would take a really, truly awful scenario. Certainly, it's going to happen over the next decade. I don't see anything that leads to that in the near term. So when we talk about those spreads, and they've been very, very important because, you know, we did see the 10-year Treasury reach lower levels. And under normal circumstances, mortgage rates, even last year, would have been much lower. 
but the spread's getting to 300 basis points instead of kind of a more normal range between 175 and 200 basis points. That hurt us in the mortgage industry. Um, what factors would lead those spreads to become more normalized, in your opinion? Yeah. So you know, we're down to 250, right, just yeah. as a result of the pivot. So as I said, with rate volatility coming down, that directly translates into less prepay risk, uh, and uh, the spread comes in. The second factor uh, related to the quantitative tightening we were talking about. So, you know, to the extent there's a risk that the Fed may actively sell MBS at some point to get back to an all treasuries portfolio, I think investors are just a little cautious about getting uh, significantly overweight in MBS relative to the to the bond index. Um, with quantitative tightening stops, um, sort of regardless of the flavor, um, I think some of that fear gets gets ameliorated to some extent. The third uh, factor was the FDIC having to quickly sell about 100 billion of MBS from the failures of the, the banks last spring. Um, you know, bank failures are sort of rare events; they could happen, but it will be unusual for get for us to get a repeat of what happened last spring to get three of the four largest bank failures in history, sort of one after the other. So. Um, I think all three of those factors look better in 24 than they did in 23. So I think spreads are likely to come in, and that, that's what's in our forecast. Yeah, Megan, I'll turn it back to you for, for other questions from, from our, our wonderful group. Yeah, so here's a, here's a fun question. Uh, will Fannie Freddie conservatorship end in our lifetime? <laughs> that's funny. I was... Speaking at another event today, and that question came up too. So um, maybe, uh, and the the reason for that is that there's two separate parts to the question, right? One is, could the companies get to a capital level which would allow for their release from conservatorship? Yes, uh, Director Calabria put in place the new capital regime. And they're on a path to retain capital to get there, but it's going to take some time. You know, at this level of profitability, ten years longer, um, but 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 it could happen. So that's sort of part one, and that's specific to sort of ownership and status of the enterprises. I think more important for anybody in the mortgage market is what happens to the MBS market, right? My worry is if they leave conservatorship without clarity about what's the extent of the backing of those mortgage-backed securities from the federal government, I think we're going to have a less stable MBS market. Um, so if we don't get clarity about that, I don't know that it's necessarily great news for mortgage borrowers or for lenders if you don't have a market that's as liquid as we have today. Um, Mortgage Bankers Association for 15 years has been really consistent putting in a policy of you need to solve that second problem. You need to be clear about the nature of the guarantee behind those Fannie and Freddie MBS. Um, that really requires Congress to act. So that's the second part of the conservatorship question, which I don't think always gets enough attention because it's, it's critical um, because you have global central banks uh, that are huge buyers of Fannie and Freddie MBS, and they're not going to do that if we don't get clarity around the nature of the securities. So, Mike, I think um, I think to kind of summarize this, I think you and I both agree that, that 2024 looks like a better year. 
Uh, maybe not as good as some of the best years that we've had, certainly, but a better year with a little more of a tailwind, a little less of a headwind, rates moving, not in a straight line, but what looks like in a better direction. And housing, uh, prices remaining supported and activity increasing, although from low levels, but still feeling a little better. Would that be safe to surmise? You nailed it. Okay. Um, and, and I think before we wrap up here, um, you know, just last week, we lost a giant in our industry and a dear friend to, to both you and I. Uh, he always referred to you with, um, you know, such, such uh, respect for your work and, uh, and so complimentary to you. And uh, obviously, we feel the same way about you. you know, so we just want to acknowledge him. He was a dear friend to me and, and, uh, and, a, and a dear friend to our whole industry. So uh, I just wanted to mention him here before we close out, because I know he's a special person to you, too. No, I really appreciate that. He, uh, he was a fantastic leader for MBA. I thoroughly enjoyed working with him during his tenure as MBA CEO. Uh, since he left, I, I certainly kept in touch with him on a very regular basis. He had strong points of view. You knew what they were, but I, I, I always really enjoyed the, the back and forth with him. And that, that continued until really not that long ago. And so it was a profound shock when, when we heard the news, even even knowing that the challenges he'd been working through these past couple of years. But but thank you for recognizing his influence on the industry. Oh, yes, we love loved him. Um, hey, uh, those of you uh, watching, um, if, if Mike, if you take a look at the chat, um, could you please all just show your appreciation to Mike and and maybe try and and encourage him to please come back because this was so terrific, Mike. We would uh, we would certainly, certainly, certainly love to have you back. This has been a, a great, great call, and I, I, uh, I hope we can get together too soon, my friend. Excellent. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you. Look at that, Mike. Take a look at the chat. Take a look at that. A lot <laughs> of love for you, brother. <laughs> yes, a lot of love for you. Megan, thank you very much, and, and all of you who took your valuable time to join us. We. We truly appreciate you. You know, we love you guys. We're doing the very best we can to add value for you every day. Thank you.